This is a Burn FM podcast. Okay, we're recording. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the third episode of Politics for You, a student-led politics podcast from the University of Birmingham on Burn FM. So today, Tali and I are joined with representatives of the University of Birmingham Labour and Conservative Society. So we're very lucky and happy to have them here. So this, this week, we're going to go interview them um, together. And so Tali and I will be asking the questions. They're going to respond and have a bit of a debate between themselves. So I'll start with the first question. Gen- this one's a bit more general. So how is your society generally perceived by the student populations? And have you received any abuse based on your political affiliation? This includes on social media, such like Bombfest, Fab and Fresh, etc. Um, either of you can start, I don't mind. I can pick this one up from our side, if that's okay. Um, naturally, it's been quite difficult to recruit this year because the environment we find ourselves in, but the, the cohort that we have recruited this year has actually found it really fun and engaging. We've been doing conference surveys over the past couple of months, what sort of events people see, how happy they are with the content. So that's going really well from our perspective. But um, I think it's quite natural with a conservative society at university to uh, um, come into some sort of uh, opposition. And we've seen that through uh, quite a few brum presses about us, unfortunately. And you can tell straight away from the content that actually they haven't engaged with any of the political societies whatsoever. Um, one that comes to mind actually was a, a recent Brumfest about, I think, believe it's the First Love Society, who's um, predominantly Christian and about spreading the Christian faith. Someone criticised that they're, they're almost hiding their, their faith through the, the renaming of their society and they linked it to um, the University of Birmingham Conservatives pushing everything as UOBC rather than the Conservative Society. And if, if you're engaged in student politics at UOB at all, you, you know that Labour Society goes as bulls, um, Lib Dem as uh, UBLD and us as UOBC. So a lot of the hate that we actually get is from people that don't engage with us, don't see what we're about, don't come to our events, that sort of thing. Definitely. Um, does anyone else, like we can have someone else from the Conservatives build on that or someone from Labour want to speak about? Also, I think it'd be interesting um, for our listeners to also know, like at the end, do you ever do um, things together, like events, or is that something that's just like never happens? Like, have, do you have conversations like this before, like we brought you all together? So. First the question to, about, yeah, sorry. Like, I'm happy to sort of, of, yeah, sure, for sure. So I think um, it's a really interesting question because Throughout my three years, this is my third year now at university, um, I've had really mixed um, encounters with people with regards to them finding out that I'm a Tory or I'm part of the Tory committee. I remember in first year, we went for the first bar crawl and at the end of it, we were all wearing our society t-shirts and we had blue t-shirts on, obviously because we were the Conservative Party. And um, there was people at Pit Stop uh, on, uh, who who were chucking chips at us because we were, Tories (laughs) so we've had that but then equally there's been so many occasions where I've spoken to people who have been like oh I'm a Tory um, but I'm just you know I've never told any of my house uh, but I I really I see the stuff the University of Birmingham Conservative Society do and it's great 
So I've had both ends of the spectrum, and I think UOBC as a, as a university, uh, sorry, University of Birmingham as a university as a whole, I think is, uh, has a lot more of a Tory community than people think. Uh, and that's really encouraging. It's really good to see. I think there's a lot more Tories here who are sympathetic uh, to UOBC, understand what we do, and actually come along or participate in an informal way. Um, and I think it's worked out really well because ultimately, it's a really welcoming community. The politics at Birmingham, regardless of what society you're in, is really welcoming. Labour's the same. We do events with them all the time. When we had in-person events, we'd have cross-party events probably every week. So um, it's very welcoming. There's no animosity there um, at all. So it's really good fun. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think from um, like a student's perspective, like seeing all the Brumfesters about like Conservatives and Labour, they wouldn't ever think, unless they're like involved in the events, but they wouldn't ever like think, oh, there's like cohesion, not yeah, like cohesion between them and like events and like talking and discussion. Like, I think that's really interesting. Like I might not have even have thought that. So yeah. No, for sure, for sure. Does anyone from Labour want to jump in and talk about like stu um, their, the student population and them? Like obviously um it's inevitable a lot more students vote and support Labour, but has it been as many as you would have thought, or like anything you want to squash or anything? Uh, yeah, in terms of like the student, obviously, yeah, there's like 70, 80% of students are Labour anyway, so we have that advantage. So I think we're the, this, I mean, yeah, we're, so we're, the, we're the biggest political society this year. Um, I think we beat Polsock this year, actually. I can't, I can't remember exactly, but so we're the biggest this year, which is quite natural because, you, you know, students are generally Labour. And I think, yeah, in terms of student politics, I think it is all, on, on the whole, it's all very respectful. I think it's all kind of, you know, we had that we had the debate event last week, which was quite enjoyable, and I think it's all uh, in terms of the actual yeah, in terms of the actual kind of political atmosphere at the uni. I think it is quite good. Um, obviously, we like we've got we get good reception. Students are predominantly left wing, but I think on you know on the whole, it never gets much further than like respectful debate when it comes to actual like societal uh, debates and stuff. Oh, sorry. Does anyone have anything to add, or should we move on to the next question? No. Can oh, I do God, so. yeah, yeah, of course. Well, like just from like a fresher's perspective, um, I would say that like um, there's a lot of like misconceptions about what people would think the conservative society would be. Um, but like for me, I found that it's literally been like the most welcoming society I've been to. Like every member of the committee is like super friendly, like always like checking on me to make sure that I'm settling in okay. Um, and I feel like especially with um, COVID as well, like they've been running really good online events that like have had really good attendance. Um, and so I feel like, especially this year, like being a fresher, being in a new place, like I feel like the conservative society is like being really supportive. And I feel like um, people wouldn't necessarily like think that that society would be able to do that, but like it's very different to what people might actually think it would be. It's good that, yeah, people are having good experiences. I think mean, it's really important, university, um, regardless of your political affiliation. So I'm happy to hear that. Uh, in terms of the next question, um, so I guess talking about experiences, but not necessarily of student, but um, minorities within the Conservative Party and Labour Party generally. Also, if you can kind of talk about whether you guys have had any instances within your own parties, uh, within your own societies at university. Uh, do you guys agree with how, how your parties approach racism within the party and what they've done to tackle it? Um, I'll take I'll, I'll take that one first since uh, I never said, never said anything on the first question. Um, but so 
I think it's it's a common theme uh, theme among all politics societies and unions that BAME engagement is notoriously quite poor actually, um, especially in labor societies, it's, it's, it's very bad. Um, and it's quite surprising because obviously like if you think uh, a majority of uh, like probably 80, 90% of BAME students will be from the left. Um, so it is quite a disappointing theme that has appeared year after year. Um, but we are trying to take like steps to change tackle that within our own um, within our own within our own um, party um, within our own society I'd say. But um, so within the society, I haven't experienced any kind of instance of like racism myself um, of any sort. I can't talk for anyone else. But um, I, I'm not 100% happy with the party. I'm talking about the general Labour's party. Um, attitude towards race at the moment. Um, I think Keir Starmer has failed on that um, so far. And obviously we had the anti-feminism scan scandal before that. Um, we've had the release of the um, the Muslim labor networks released into the Islamophobia. Um, and I think on a broad level, the, the party has failed on the issue of race. <clears throat> However, I, I will say this, that um, being part of the Labour Society and its BAME rep, um, I do think that the Labour Society at the university is like a good place for change. Um, and BAME people who do join will be like welcomed with open arms. And um, I hope, my hope is that we can build BAME leaders from, from here who in the future will go out uh, and tackle the issue of race within this country head on. Um, and that's really, that's really why I took my position as a BAME officer um, my opinions about the Labour Society may be different, but the Labour Society, no, the Labour Party, but the Labour Society at this university really can be a force for good. I also do not think, um, in regards to um, Keir Starmer's response, the EHRC response, and the whole Jeremy Corbyn debacle that is taking steps in order to tackle at least anti-Semitism in the party. So it is... Um, or... Yeah. Some, um, I think, I'm, I'm not going to comment on that because it's a very divisive issue within the Labour Society um, and in the Labour Party in general. Um, what I will say, uh, yeah, I'd rather not comment on that, to be honest. I, I'm, okay. I'm not here to um, cause fractional wars in the Labour Party. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's fair enough. Yeah, Henry, do you want to say anything on... Um, so me and Henry, I've had some interesting conversations um, before the general election, um, me explaining like why I wouldn't so why I wouldn't vote Labour in this election because I'm a Jewish student and anti-Semitism. Um, so do you want to elaborate on some of like, the conversations we had? And it's also interesting to note um, um, what Abu said, that it's like the difference between like the party and the society. Um, do you feel like you're quite a step separate to the party? Like, what, like, do you feel like a strong connection to the party or do you feel like you're your own Birmingham like bubble of like Labour students in a way, if you get what I'm saying? Yeah, no, yeah, that's, that's interesting. So I think in terms of us being separate to that, uh, where the Labour Party here stands in terms of the whole Labour Party, there is I think there's a definite difference. I think, you know, we are a, we are a Birmingham University Labour students. And I think that's, you know, that's an advantage in a lot of ways. I think it's not, you know, like um, Abby was saying about how Labour students, he, well, here we can be a force for good. And we're almost not, I don't want to say isolated, but from the, the wider issues in the party, and the wider issues that happen in the party, we managed to actually kind of be separate from those. And it allows us to actually be a force organization for students 
who are generally students generally are on the right side when it comes to the big giant party stuff because students are like trying you know trying to push for good I think, yeah, I mean, our conversations for the election, I remember, yeah, that was obviously good. I think there was a lot of concerns from the Jewish community and generally talking to people and just going through those concerns is obviously uh, an, an important part of the election for everyone. I think, you know, for, for myself included, talking to people from like various, various backgrounds and stuff about what was going on in the election and stuff. And I think there was a lot. And in terms of the party, obviously, it has become a very big sensitive issue. There's elements, you know, there are there are elements of factionalism there, which I know Abu didn't want to comment on. So that's, you know, fair, fair enough, because even on our even on our committee, there's we don't have a consistent. Our committee approach was after the EHRC was we want to look at their recommendations. As of everyone, we want to we want to get the recommendations done. We want to get this evil out of the party. And then, but then we're on our, we're on our own we're on our own committee. There's device on actually how's the best way to move forward with that. Yeah, I think there's always going to be like differing views within um, within the party. That's why there's so many different factions. In terms of um, the Conservative Society, there's a statistic that 57% of Conservative members have neg negative views about Muslims. Um, would you touch on the Islamophobia and Boris Johnson and um, that topic? Um, and also, yeah, some, um, when they were having the leadership election, all the leaders agreed after Sajid Javid brought it up to have a um, inquiry into Islamophobia, but this inquiry was changed to a general discrimination one. I think that kind of, by changing it from just from the specific into general, kind of means it's going to be less effective in tackling Islamophobia and shows that the party is taking it less seriously than it should be. Yeah, so <clears throat> just to address a few of those different points raised. Firstly, within the UOB Conservative Society, we have probably the most diverse committee than any other political society out there. Um, and if that's not because we have any liberation roles. We don't have specific roles for uh, liberation officers. That's merely because we have a fairly diverse society full stop. So we have um, Muslims on our committee, Christians, Jews, uh, we have Europeans, English people, Asians. So we've got, you know, we've got the lot. Um, and it's something that we're really, really proud of because it's not something we've tried to do. You know, um, I mean, you know, I identify as Muslim. Um, I'm the chair of the society. Uh, there has never been anything that has, you know, held anyone back from running for committee uh, or that should make anyone feel like they're, you know, they don't belong in the Conservative Party. I think we're, we've, you know, we've been very welcoming in that sense. And it's something we're really proud of. Uh, with regards to the party generally, I've been a member now for um, five years, four, four and a half, five-ish years. And in my time, I've never experienced, you know, any form of racism as such. That's not to say that we haven't had problems with it. I think, you know, there have rightly been some issues which have been raised. Uh, but I've been really impressed with the way that CCHQ, so Conservative Campaign Headquarters, have dealt with cases of Islamophobia within the party. Um, you know, you raised the um, the point about uh, the report, the inquiry into Islamophobia. And I think at the time we were seeing some, a serious scandal of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. And when we're talking about, you know, discrimination against any religion, I think it's important that we look across the board. It's important that we, you know, we consider all forms of racism, whether they come, uh, whether they're targeted towards Muslims or Jews, it doesn't matter. The bottom line is that it's unacceptable, regardless of, you know, who it's directed to. And I think that was the approach that was, you know, the, the prime minister wanted to take that religious discrimination in any form is unacceptable. Um, and, and I think now what we've seen is a really robust um, 
uh, campaign to end and end sorry any forms of Islamophobia in the party. And I think as of late, we've made some serious improvements on that. We have the most diverse cabinet ever uh, in British history, which includes Muslims, Hindus, um, and a number of other ethnic minority um, minorities and religions. So I think we've made some serious progress, and it's something I'm really pleased with. Okay, great. And just as a general thing, you guys can kind of argue back, so to speak, um, amongst yourselves between the Conservative and Labour Party. So I don't feel like it's just me and Talia that has. Yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely. Yeah. Um, I, I just wanted so to, respond. to respond to that um, quickly, um, to, to Ali's point. Um, so this is why I would have been more confident joining the Labour Society than the Conservative Society. Um, obviously, I am far to the left of anything the Conservatives believe when it comes to economics. Um, but I, even when it comes to social issues, I think with Labour members, there is more of a willingness to admit that there's a problem than with the Tories I've talked to, especially the Conservatives um, of, of Bayan backgrounds, who a, a lot of the time um, refuse to acknowledge that the issues of race that the Conservative parties have consistently struggled with. Um, like, uh, with all due respect, I do not believe having a diverse cabinet uh, in any way reflects um, having uh, tackled the issue of uh, race, especially when <laughs> um, Pretty Patel, who is obviously Home Secretary, has been pushing the deportations of people who have been living in this country 30, 40 years, uh, trying to send them back to Jamaica on, on a plane. Um, and I think, you know, I can, you can tell me you have a diverse group of like, you can tell me you have 100% BAME parliament for what I care, but if you're not willing, if all those BAME people are trying to oppress the, the rest, then um, this is a, <clears throat> it's like a fundamental issue. Uh, and I, the Tories do bring up often, and it's, it's kind of right in some way that they say, oh, the left uses identity a bit too much. Um, but this is a rights weaponization of race. They will bring in um, BAME, uh, BAME people in higher positions like Sajid Javid, like Pretty Patel, like Rishi Sunak, who may be qualified or may not be qualified. Um, and then they kind of use them as a shield to, to defend themselves against indefensible government action, which is a lot worse than having one or two people in positions of power. Um, and I think that's the fundamental problem here, not about the diversity of your group, but the policies that that group intends to implement. Okay, you wanna do, does anyone wanna respond to that or do you wanna move on to the next question? Could I respond to that? Of course. So um, I, I think it's a case of, it, it seems we're damned if we do, damned if we don't, in terms of promoting uh, mi uh, minorities into higher positions in cabinet. Because if we, we wasn't to have um, such ministerial powerhouses such as uh, Priti Capel, Sajid Javid, um, I think we'd be accused of the, the opposite, almost institutional racism by not promoting um, ethnic minorities into positions of cabinet. And when we do, and often ahead of the Labour Party, remember we've had two female prime ministers and Labour yet to have one. Um, when we do promote um, ethnic minorities to cabinets, they often get called uh, race traitors, Uncle Tom's coconuts. I know Ali has um, suffered particularly um, on that front, especially on social media. I love it's quite impersonal. All I'd like to add. Yeah, um, let, let me just read this out quickly um, and really short. So one of my, my best friends, uh, one of my closest friends at university, 
um, is a Tory and he's also a Muslim. Um, and I get on really well with him. In fact, we talk politics all the time. And I think the issue is here is uh, the issue is he is willing to accept that the Tory party needs to tackle the issue of race. And he's very open and honest with me about it. Uh, the issue I have sometimes is that, uh, and he, he doesn't, he doesn't like Pretty Patel. He doesn't agree with her policies. But if you, if my fundamental issue is right here, is that the foreign policy positions and the, and the immigration policy positions of the Tory party are just racist full stop in my opinion. Uh, and there's no way around that. There's no way for me to kind of like, uh, twist that or say it in a different way but fundamentally the immigration policies are racist uh and that that really and he's willing to accept that and he's like look i i believe in right-wing economics which is a different issue we can discuss that but these social issues i disagree with the party on but when there's a refusal from BAME, um BAME people to do that then I, I've, ne I've never in my life called anyone a race traitor but i will say that they they are there as individuals they're not as representatives of the whole group of people that's not possible so can i, can I just a quick respond, response so then we'll end that yeah just a quick response yeah just a quick response i think it's something we see with the left all the time especially minorities on the left I, and i'm i've said so, i've said it so many times and i'm happy to say it again I, and the bottom line is the left will only be happy with representation for minorities provided those minorities agree with them if you have ethnic minorities who do not, do not agree with the left's agenda, then to them, they are, they are not uh, true representatives of that community uh, because ultimately they don't have left-wing opinions. Um, I've, I've you know, also experienced that. You know, Greg mentioned I've been called a, a coconut, um, a number of stuff on social media. And you know, we laugh it off because, um, because, I mean, it doesn't affect me at all, but the bottom line is most of the abuse that I've received as a minority conservative has come from the left. Uh, and I think there's a failure on the left to acknowledge actually uh, that they are part of a much wider problem here of shunning minorities who disagree with them. Um, in addition to that, I think there was something mentioned about Priti Patel there. Um, and you know, you have every right to, to dislike politicians. You have every right to disagree with them. Um, but the bottom line is that people like Priti Patel and Rishi Sunak and Sajid Javid disagree with some on the left and that should not be a reason why they get abused so much on a daily basis. I mean, I think Abby, you mentioned about Priti Patel deporting um, the de deportations to Jamaica. And you know, again, it's not a case of race basically. It's not a case, it's, it's not a racial issue. The bottom line here was that these were criminals who weren't British, that committed, you know, serious crimes uh, who, and we were safer as a country without them on our streets. So, you know, I think there's an obsession with the left of trying to uh, get ethnic minorities. Uh, wrap up. Sure. I mean, that, that, I mean that, that, that's essentially the point, you know, that's all I have to say, really. Yeah, thank you. Okay, we'll move on to the next question. So I'm going to ask like a couple of like Corona related questions. So um, does, um, what is your genuine perspective on the five day Christmas bubble? Is the time people will spend with their loved ones worth the risk of a January lockdown? And then also on that, um, following on from that, how do you truly think the government has handled the pandemic? For example, like um, New Zealand had the strictest um, lockdown where they shut the borders completely and there were only like two cases in total. Um, yeah, so anyone wants to? Yeah. I get to start, is that all right? Yeah, of course. 
Yeah, so I think I'd, I'd struggle. I'd, I mean, I'll ask anyone. I think anyone would struggle to give me any any single metric or measure they could use to argue that the, the British Conservative government has not made the UK in what, like the bottom 10 countries in the world in terms of response. We have the highest death count in Europe as of a week ago. I don't, think that's, that's, don't think that's correct. In terms of population, probably like Spain. Yeah, um, Spain has more deaths per, per million people. I know we're the 10th largest deaths per 1 million people in the world. If you want to a stat. But Spain does as higher. I'm pretty sure Italy does as well. Uh, yeah, I've got I've got a stat somewhere. Yeah, got, so so we, I mean we've got in terms of, in terms of death rate at least we've got one of the highest. We've got in terms of economic recession we've got the highest in the G8. So I'd struggle to find anyone to give any kind of in way in which they could argue there's been any sort of good job here. And it's got to the point where the government keeps saying world beating. We're gonna offset track and trace for like two months before after everyone else does because we're gonna make an amazing world beating one. We're gonna um, you know create our own. There's only so many times you can say world beating before people actually have a look, open a book, read an article and realize actually how poorly everything's been handled. So we, as of 18th of, Ju so 18th of June, 2020, according to the BBC and the Office of National Statistics, we had the third highest death toll in the world and the highest in Europe in June uh, and the second highest death rate per million in the world as of May. So regardless of how it's changed after, you know, a month later, that is absolutely catastrophic. We're seeing people getting, you know, we're seeing whole, whole communities getting destroyed by this. And then you could argue, oh, but it's fine because we've saved the economy. But then we have the highest economic recession in the G8. There's literally no way anyone can try and justify any of these policies. So, I mean, I'd, I'd love to hear anyone actually try and defend um, the conservative policy on, on COVID-19, if anyone would like to defend them. I'm, I'm happy to, if, unless Greg or Izzy, you want to jump in. Um, I mean, all I was going to say really is, look, this country has the largest economic support package than any other country in the world, right? We're not talking Europe, we're talking in the world. There's no other country that has given its people the amount of support that this country has. And I think the one thing that the government said when they were going into this was, if we can look back, if we can look back at the crisis and say that we did everything we could to support people financially through one of the hardest times in this country's history, then we will have succeeded. Of course, there's going to be a recession. There's a global recession, right? We, we've gone through a, pand a global pandemic. No one is gonna come out of this looking pretty. That's the bottom line. But the thing that this government can say very confidently is they gave each and every citizen as much support as they possibly could get. We are, we not, I mean, 280 billion pounds support, economic support package to support businesses and people. You know, we stepped in to pay their, their wages. No other country can say that they've done as much for their people as we have. But I mean, ultimately, of course, there'll be challenges. Of course, there'll be economic challenges and health challenges that come with that. But we've, I think, you know, we can be confident in that we've supported people through a really difficult time. Um, yeah, let, let me just jump, jump in there and say the economic response of the Conservative Party has genuinely surprised me. Um, I do think that Rishi Sunak is probably one of the better conservatives around. Um, and you know what? Uh, he's, he's done a decent job. It, he's made a lot of mistakes, don't get me wrong, and I, I could point them out. But in, in terms of, in general, Tory party terms, I think he's done as good a job as any Tory I would trust. Um, but the number one issue that, that has occurred is the government has 
failed to either do a proper economic or a proper health response and has butchered both um, by failing to prioritize an earlier lockdown and uh, in, uh, doing it for a long enough period that the government um, didn't crush the economy at the same time. Um, and you can see this all around the world where countries who took the, the virus serious earlier um, now have lower rates of death and have stronger economies. So th this was the, the conservative party's failing of trying to um, of trying to sustain a, a, a economy when they should have been thinking about the health of the people first. Um, and that's where the fundamental failing is. The economic response is a different discussion, requires a bit more nuance. Uh, and I'm willing to give it to them. That is as good as any Tory parties would have been, really. I'd, I'd also just add, you, so the economic response, yeah, I agree with Abu. It, it surprised me a little bit. EL to help out for like a, a few weeks, sure. Um, and some fur and furlough pay, which I mean, which is quite a common policy uh, throughout Europe. But, um, and obviously, yeah, I mean, a lot of people did advance, you know, did quite well out of the furlough pay. People have got, I mean, 80% of minimum wage isn't a lot, um, but people managed to, you know, use furlough pay to keep going short. But I don't think that answers the question of why we, you know, and I'll get the economics is slightly more nuanced, but why we do, we do have the largest uh, recession in the G8. And that doesn't change the fact that we have, well, we had the third highest death toll in the world as of June, and we're pretty similar around there now. Um, so I don't think that does actually answer the question. And in terms, I'm not sure people are going to be particularly, you know, appreciative of, okay, we've had this, uh, you know, we've got some economic packages, but some people are already back out. Some countries already have the economy back open again, and they're already back on, you know, back in their lives working because they actually had common sense and they didn't wait two months after everyone else before they responded. They actually met, they did a lockdown, made a plan for track and trace, came out and they were fine. We didn't use the existing track and trace model because we were going to make a world beating one, which came out to be absolutely awful. And now going into our second lockdown, and it's only the vaccine is our only seen way out. But the track and trace never has never been properly working. Regu I mean, regardless of how it's you know slightly been up and going a little bit, you still have whole area you still have whole areas where the track and trace efficiency is tiny. And even then, yes. it's the local authorities that are, that are subsidizing it. It's not even and we've given what we've given we're giving billions to giant companies with no bearing on what they're doing, no experience. We're losing millions of PPE that we've just bought that's been unfit for use because we bought it from the wrong companies. Operation Cygnus in 2016 told us we were not prepared for a pandemic. The Conservatives then just covered that up, completely ignored it, put their fingers in their ears, and then what four years later a pandemic comes and they're absolutely screwed because they've spent 10 years underfunding the NHS to the best of their ability. So it's not a conservative response. Sorry. Yeah. I think it's it's a common um, it's it's easy to criticize the government when you believe that they can influence measure and influence every single aspect of our life and it's just simply not true we've seen throughout the pandemic people not following the restrictions put in place and the measures to keep people safe and stop the spread of coronavirus so I, I have yet to hear anything from uh, the Labour uh, the Labour opposition, anything significant that would have made it uh, slow down the spread. The only successful countries that have uh, battled corona and, and won are um, an isolated island in New Zealand where everyone lives um, a, a many miles apart and an authoritarian government in China which literally beat people into their own homes. So I think a lot of it is, is just down to dumb luck of population density um, 
how many of our businesses are in like central areas, that sort of thing, because we are quite city oriented still. So a lot of our big business and huge employers are in big cities. And it's still a lot of us rely on public transport to get to work, which was known as a, a big spreader. But at the same time, we're not. OK, sorry. Can I just jump in? Really okay. quick point, just a really quick one. I, it's, all, it's, really, it's really quite, I think, interesting to see Labour stand up and say all of this. Thank God Keir is at the helm of this, because if we had listened to Keir Starmer, we would have had a two week lockdown like Wales did. Uh, we'd be out of it and our cases would have shot up again. That's exactly what's happened in Wales. The bottom line is Labour haven't had a clue the whole time. Labour have, have voted through all the legislation that, we, that you know, we've put forward, rightly so, because it's the right thing to do, but then somehow still find, find places to, to complain. What we need really is national unity. Keir votes things through, he then opposes it. Um, there is no there is no policy that is coherent from Labour on this at all. So I find it quite amusing, really. Yeah, I was actually really we'll, next we'll question. Let, so, we'll yeah. we have to let we'll Henry to speak because we let Ali. Yeah. So Henry, you're the last thing on this because you were about to say something. You have like one sentence. So yeah, uh, just quick. Um, so I, I still don't think anyone's actually properly answered my question from the start because you made excuses for them. But at the same time, we're not the third most free country in the world. We're not the third most densely populated country in the world, nor are we the third most use of public transport, which are the reasons you gave for us having high COVID numbers. So you can explain why we haven't done great, but that doesn't explain why in uh, May we had the third highest death toll in the world. This isn't just saying why we had it bad. Corona is going to be bad, but you, no one has actually explained why it's def even defensible that we were in that high level of death count in the world. No one's actually given any actual tangible explanation for that. I'd like to move, oh, yeah. James can go on to the next yeah. question. I'd just like to kind of touch on what um, Ali was saying in terms of the Labour Party. So do you think they've been an effective opposition this year, especially considering um, with the, the last vote on the measures to do with the tier system, they just abstained, so they wouldn't that make it easy for Keir Starmer to claim a win regardless whether it happens or not? Yeah, um, let, let me answer this one by saying I have left the Labour Party due to this, and uh, I, I know this is meant to be, I'm meant to be representing Labour, but I am here to represent the Labour Society at University, not the Labour Party, and I 100% agree with Ali, Keir Starmer's response to this has been an absolute 110% joke, he has mismanaged it all over the place, but what I do want to say is this is the fundamental difference between the two sides, the Labour Party and members of the Labour Party have criticised Keir Starmer over and over again when he had made a mistake. The Conservative Party have made mistake after mistake after mistake. And I have never heard one senior Tory just come out and say, we got it wrong. Doesn't happen. It's like, it's like, I don't know if it's a, the Boris effect or if it's like some kind of Trump effect where you just, the, the right just gather in in their ranks and they refuse to criticize each other. Um, and it is very sad because it leads to a less, less effective response overall. Can we focus this more on the, the Labour Party? We've spoken a lot about criticising the Conservative government before. So, um, if any of the Conservative members... Um, yeah, do the Conservatives like feel like, um, like they've been an effective opposition and they've been able to... Like, do you think the pandemic's made it harder to, to criticise the government about delegitimizing it so it's less people follow the rules for example um from a conservative perspective like if the labor party were going to be completely against the rules that would force not force that would cause labor to go against it do you think 
um, that there's been enough, like, um, yeah, basically. Well, I think, I think it's a really interesting question because from people who aren't in this political bubble, you know, people who just want to get on with their lives, who are trying to battle the pandemic, when they look at Westminster, they see one side, the government, who are, you know, uh, completely focused on COVID, whether they agree with the, you know, the direction the government's going in or not is a separate question. But what they see is a government that is, you know, fully focused on trying to deal with the pandemic. When they look across the benches at Labour, they see um, a front bench that is trying to still a year, a few years on, still trying to battle, um, having an internal battle about anti-Semitism uh, in their party. There is no way I think that the Labour Party will ever be an effective opposition until they really get down to the problems they have with anti-Semitism in their own party. I know Sir Keir is, you know, now trying his best to move the Labour Party away from the image they have they had last year of, you know, being the anti-Semitic party. But the bottom line remains that Keir Starmer helped Jeremy Corbyn get into Downing Street, and I don't think that they have any uh, legs to stand on when it comes to this. There is no way you can run to be prime minister when you can't even get your own party to back you. Abu, I think, is a clear example of that. I mean, he's left the Labour Party because he has no trust in it. If Labour's own members can't trust their own leader, how on earth can you expect the rest of the country to? Um, yeah, I mean, this, I mean, what Abby mentioned earlier about how the left criticises themselves, but the right can't, I think it's interesting this. It, that maybe applies to the whole... Um, about the Labour divide about anti-Semitism. There's a Labour divide about anti-Semitism because a large portion of the Labour Party wants to fight anti-Semitism. The leader of the Conservative Party, Boris Johnson, when he was, a when he was an editor for The Spectator, he used to publish articles by the, uh, quote, proud anti-Semite, Taki, who's also a Holocaust denier. Jacob Rees-Mogg cites George Soros conspiracy theories, and 28 MPs last month wrote in The Telegraph and cited the anti-Semitic trope of cultural Marxism. But you don't see a, a civil war there because they do not care. So that's why I said, but we're talking about COVID. So it's in, I don't know why you distracted from that, but I, I, I disagree with Labour's opposition. And I would absolutely love to hear one of you maybe just say, yeah, maybe it's a little bit bad that the Conservatives messed up a little bit and gave us the third highest death, uh, death toll in the world uh, as of June. And suddenly we're back on to COVID, it seems. But um, back to the actual question. Um, it's, it's a funny one with Labour because there's, there's still loads of infighting, I think. There's a bit of a power struggle, even with the main proprietor, Jeremy Corbyn, not part of Labour anymore. There's still this power struggle between the uh, traditional left socialist wing and the, the more modern centre-left Keir Starmer wing. But um, the, I don't agree with abstinations. Abstentions? Abstentions. Because I think it's a bit a bit of a cop out. I think you should be either vote vote I or no. Because um, abstentions don't actually do much. They don't contribute to the debate. If you don't like a bill, you should vote it down. And if you wholeheartedly agree, vote for it. And unfortunately, we are seeing a bit too much uh, sitting on the fence from Labour to be an effective opposition. And that's something we want as a as a country: an effective opposition keeps the government in check, checks and balances, but unfortunately we're not quite getting that. Okay, so move on to another question. So um, this is more about Scotland, so let's do party lines, I guess, but um, is there an argument for a second Scottish referendum if the nationalist parties receive a majority next year in the Scottish election? 
No. Um, no, I, I, I don't think there's much more for me to add on that, to be honest. I think, you know, 2014, there was a referendum on this, and the people of Scotland voted to remain in the United Kingdom. It's the, it's, it's over, you know, I know that Scotland voted to remain uh, in the EU. However, primarily and first and foremost, they are part of the United Kingdom, whether they like it or not. And, uh, you know, we've been part of this union. It's the most successful union uh, in the world, and I see no argument whatsoever uh, that can be made for them leaving the United Kingdom. Uh, I think what we've seen is something quite toxic from the SNP. Throughout the course of the pandemic, they've used every opportunity when people are dying in Scotland and across the rest of the United Kingdom to try and push an agenda which people really do not care about right now. They are obsessed with this idea of uh, independence, which has been really counterproductive in, time, in terms of trying to battle the pandemic. Um, uh, just one phrase you said, you said they're in the union if they like it or not. Now, there, there's, there's a word for when you have a country that's forced to be part of a, a group without- I didn't, I didn't, sorry, just to clarify, I didn't, I didn't quite say that. I said, uh, you, I, uh, said, I, said if, I said first and foremost, they are part of the United Kingdom because I think Scottish people would identify then you, more. Then you said if they like it or not. You said if, if they like it or not. Well, they're part of the United Kingdom at the moment. And what, I'm, what the, the point being made was, I think Scottish people, not to speak on their behalf, but in terms of culture, would identify way, you know, a lot more with the United Kingdom than they would with the European Union. That, that was, that's the point being made. Uh, okay, sorry. Uh, but surely then a referendum would then confirm that. So you've said you believe that they would, so surely a referendum is just a way of confirming that. Yeah, well, we had one in 2014, and they voted to remain in the UK. Do you not think the State of the Union is now so fundamentally different to it was in 2014, six, six years on, six years on? No, I don't think so. I, I don't think it's so fundamentally different. I think it was quite important the part. EU, you know, and that was it. And, you know, the discussions about leaving the European Union were being had for years before 2014. It's always something that this country has had on its horizon. It's always been a you know possibility, but in 2014, Scots votes to remain in the United Kingdom, and we can't keep going over the same debates again and again. It's really it's un unhelpful, I think. So when would you like to see this revisited as an issue? I don't think it needs revisiting. Ever. Not in this. And, you know, Nicholas Sturgeon said really clearly this is a once in a generation vote. Je you know, I, I think we're still in the same generation. It's only been six years since, and. I don't think there's any argument to be made for another referendum. I think what people really want this, you know, the Scots to do and what they really want this government in the United, in England to do as well is just focus on building now back from the pandemic. I don't think a Scottish referendum, uh, an independence on referendum will, will help us do any of that. Sorry, sorry so is, is the, is the um, Labour Party position on this then? Can you guys hear me? Let, let's, let's, let's wrap this one up, um, if that's okay. And we'll move on to the next question, um, which is, do you see in the future a major political campaign having on our manifesto to rejoin the EU if we ever leave? Wait, can you hear me? Yeah. Um, so, no, I don't think so. Um, this was Jeremy Corbyn's um, outside anti-Semitism, uh, outside anti-Semitism. In terms of politics, um, this was his biggest mistake. Um, which was refusal, which was a um, kind of not pushing for soft Brexit hard enough. Um, there would have been a majority for it as well in Parliament at the time. Uh, and no, uh, fundamentally, I believe um, that the European Union, uh, we will not rejoin it 
because um, it's become too much of a divisive issue in our country. And um, I don't see a way back for, for um, us. Uh, I think we should focus on um, uniting the country and hopefully maybe it will be on someone's manifesto one day to rejoin the single single market or the customs union, et cetera, to um, improve trading relations. But never will we be back as part of the EU because it's far too divisive. Okay, so uh, we'll go on to another question. So uh, do you guys think that first past the post is the most effective democratic system that we can have? You know, a few seconds to think about it, don't worry. <laughs> And if you don't think so, what um, what um, sh what should we do instead? Like, and what country's model would you want to follow the most? Um, it's it's a bit of a short one for me because we've we've only ever known first past the post, but um, I look to countries that that do have different electoral systems and it's often um, uh, quite challenging to pass uh, quite a lot of uh, like how do you say um, like heavy spending bills uh, really important like legislation so I think different electoral systems can often slow down progress within a country whereas first past the post it gives one per one party a mandate to push through with their agenda, which is outlined in a clear manifesto, rather than different parties coming together, having to work out differences and compromise on a lot of issues. And I believe compromise, while it's a good thing, it's certainly pragmatic. It can get a lot of uh, meaningful change through. Compromise sometimes often leads to watering down of certain um, issues. So I think first past the post gives uh, one party a, a clear uh, mandate to push through with their agenda without having to change their, their policies and end up with something that nobody's quite happy with, but they all just come to agree to the lesser evils of it. Just to decide, like Abu's frozen, so I think he's just uh, leaving and then joining again. He's just messaged me, um, just let you know. No one has anything else to add. I'll move on to the next question. Um, okay. Oh, anyone? No. Okay. Um, what will happen to US-UK relations and relationship when Biden becomes president? Um, yeah. I mean, with Biden, I don't think I don't, I don't think Biden is the um, the sort of like new hope he's being described as because. I mean, all US presidents have been pretty awful uh, in, I mean, pretty much since the start. And I think we, what we've seen is there's this idea now that Biden's suddenly this new wave in America, he's some sort of new hope. But actually, it's just anything, you know, no, nothing pre Trump was desirable. He was an awful person, he was an awful president, but he, he's, he's relatively symptomatic of what's happened. So if a UK, U, UK US relationship, I'd question if that's even desirable. 
because at the moment, our whole foreign policy is built on bourgeois, big business convenience with no kind of bearing on morality. They're, 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 you know, there's no there's no reason we should be, I mean, obviously other than economic, that's the only reason we're allies with, with America. There's no reason we're allies of America other than other, other than other nations. You know, our whole foreign policy is built on that concept. For example, we sell bombs to Saudi Arabia that they drop on civilians, and we train their when we train them to drop bombs on civilians. Our UK foreign policy for a long, long time, and this includes Labour Party, this includes the biggest stain on Labour's history of the Iraq War and Tony Blair. That's what happens when you cozy up to America. So I'm not saying we should now be actively hostile, but I would just question the parameters that a UK-US relationship, a close one, is actually desirable because all of them are going to be putting us into military situations, whether that's the war on terror, whether that's another invasion or some sort of imperialist policy. Um, just, just, you know, providing another perspective, maybe. Um, I think our relationship with the US is something to be really proud of. Uh, you know, we are longest standing ally, um, a country that, you know, a major superpower that we can rely on uh, because of our shared values. Um, and I think that the case of the UK and the US's relationship doesn't come down to who is prime minister and who is president. It comes down to our two nations and the people and our values. So it doesn't really matter who president, who the president is. I think ultimately relationships with the United Kingdom and the United States will always be positive and they'll always be um, you know, progressive and honest. Um, I think with regards to Joe Biden, I don't think we have, I, I know that there's been um, you know, mention of worrying about you know, a trade deal with the United States and what that means um, for us post-Brexit. I don't think it's something we should be too worried about. Um, personally, um, I was quite happy to see, uh, and I, you know, I don't speak on behalf of anyone here, but, but myself, I was quite pleased to see Joe Biden get elected. I think it uh, can put us in a really uh, good place post-Brexit. I think it's good that we, you know, we're, we're coming to the centre-right. Um, uh, and I think it, I think in terms of the, for, for the UK post-Brexit, I think Joe Biden will want to make a name for himself as well. Um, and that will involve positive relationships with the United Kingdom. When, when you mentioned, sorry, when, when you mentioned our shared values, what, what exactly were you referring to uh, in terms of, like that, you said that's well, shared values. Yeah, no, I, I think the people of the UK and the US would would agree that our shared values of freedom, democracy, being at the heart of our society, uh, you know, individual liberty, choice. Um, th those are some of the critical values I think that we share with those, and those are the ones that we would want to, you know, carry on supporting uh, in whatever way. And I think foreign policy is one way of doing that, and I think there are a number of other ways. Uh, of doing that too, such as with trade deals, um, working with other nations, be it with the United Nations, you know, I think there's a number of ways of doing that, but I think fundamentally the thing that brings us two together are our values, and that's why we remain such close allies, regardless of who's at the helm. The USA since 1945 has, has done about 60 uh, attacks, imperialism, bomb attacks, sabotage, regime changes, they have the highest prison population in human history, what part of, in terms of foreign policy, what kind of values of freedom are desirable that we, that we share with them there? So I'm not, I'm not here to talk on behalf of, you know, America's history. I mean, it's not, it's not for me to decide who, who what country they go into. Uh, but ultimately, I think the case that's being made here is 
the United Kingdom and the US, right? It's a relationship. It, I'm not here to defend America's history. I'm not here to tell you what invasions were justified morally or, or not. That's not for me to say. Um, and I'm sure that there's some that weren't justified. Uh, and I think every country has to look at its past and decide whether such things they did were, were correct or wrong. And that, you know, that's a consist, that's a constant conversation uh, and a retrospective look at history that everyone needs to do. Um, I don't think that really has much um, relevance in terms of our relationship with the US, US right now. I think looking into the future, it's, it, it is, like I said, about those values that bring us together. And that is what is at the core of, of our relationship with the US. And I don't think that will change regardless of whether... It's more of a personal light-hearted question. So what's been your like political highlight of the year coming to the end of 2020? I know it hasn't been the greatest year for all of us, but just one answer from each of you. Give you a bit of time to think about that. Or just like, doesn't that need to be political, just highlighting the UK? I'd have to have to kick off, that's right. Yeah, or like yeah. a highlight within like the society, like an event you did like before COVID or something. Or like within COVID, like a Zoom. Um, so I, I'm talking about sort of the year from today so a year today actually was the day of the 2019 general election and you know one of us had to say it um and i remember sitting in my living room i should have been at the count but i had mumps i got diagnosed with mumps a few days before the election count so i couldn't actually go but i remember sat in my living room um with my family watching the election results and seeing the exit poll and I know how hard the society had worked and we had gone campaigning for hours and hours and hours. And it just felt so incredible to know that, you know, things were going to be all right. Corbyn would be out of number 10 for a long time, probably forever. Um, and it just felt like, you know, things had paid off. And it, it, it was a great feeling to know that we'd finally achieved something so, so massive. So, yeah, I'd definitely say that was it. Um, Greg, do you want to go next? Sure. Um, it's it's a tough one for me, um, especially since um, I, I was out all day at the general election. But it is something quite different. Um, so, being selected to represent my hometown in the upcoming council elections was definitely a highlight for me. Just representing somewhere where I've, I've grew up in and a chance to make real change in my own community. I'm really excited for it. Okay, cool. That is very cool. Um, Henry, do you want to go next? Oh, um, I mean, it's quite hard. But I say, like, towards the start of the year, there was just something I'm really proud of for Bulls doing was it was uh, our vice chair, uh, Jennifer, is amazing. She was the lead on it, but we did this... Uh, basically push for tech inequality, a drive to get like laptops and stuff to people. Obviously when everyone's going online, was really struggling with that. So that was in terms of like bulls, that big proudest of everyone there. And also the other day um, when Nigella Lawson said micro wave instead of microwave, I quite enjoyed as well. Yeah, that was so funny. My sister showed me that yesterday. Um, Izzy, do you want to go next? Um, yeah, like this might be kind of like a bit unpopular um, and like I don't agree with like everything that she's done. But for me, like um, seeing Pretty Patel like being, I know this was like a year ago now, but like seeing her being appointed to like 
the top roles in the cabinet, like, you know, are minority women, like they never ever get these sorts of roles. So I feel like um, for me, like a mixed race woman, like in politics, like um, that was like something really inspirational. And it kind of like, I think for a lot of um, minority women out there, it kind of showed them that like, you know, there is a space for them, like in the top political roles. Okay, and last but not least, Adu, do you want to say your highlight? Uh, well, my highlight as a Liverpool fan is Liverpool winning the league after 30 years and the first time <laughs> in my lifetime. That was a great day, I must say. Um, but politically speaking, um, there's been there's been a couple. Um, firstly, I'd, I'd say uh, when um, Pretty Patel did try to deport those individuals, the fact that um, do good lawyers managed to get uh, most of them off the plane back into this country uh, and back into our judicial system was a great success. I was really happy that day. Um, and also the Black Lives Matter protests, um, and not just the protests, but the amount of education that went on on the issue of race around that period was um, really good to see. And uh, the, the engagement of people was really nice to see. Uh, so those were my two highlights. Okay, great. Thank you, everyone. Thank you guys so much for spending your Saturday night doing this. We've really, really enjoyed it. And we hope that you guys all enjoyed it and got something out of it. Um, follow our podcast politics for you and we should be up um, within the week um, so we'll I'll send you all um, I'll email you 